Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 164 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about ghostly activity at the San Diego border. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. San Diego is one of the most prominent cities in California. With nicknames like America's Finest City and the Birthplace of California, it's the home of one and a half million people. It's the home of the oldest church in California, founded by St. Junipero Serra. San Diego is an international city with people from all over the world, and located on the Mexican border, thousands of people cross back and forth between Mexico and the United States. But few people know that in the 1990s, the border region began getting a reputation as a paranormal hotspot. So how did it begin? What sort of ghostly activity has been reported, and what could possibly explain it? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this, this is a special patron episode whose topic was chosen by Paul Sklenik and his kids. Paul and his family became patrons at a level which included the opportunity to choose an episode topic, and they wanted a ghost story, so here it is. So, Jimmy, what's your personal connection to today's topic? Well, I've lived in San Diego for the last 28 years. I moved here from Arkansas to come to work for Catholic Answers. So I was living here during the time of the story we'll be telling today, though I didn't know about it back then. How come? Why didn't you hear about it back then? Well, it wasn't public knowledge. It was something that only a handful of people knew about, many of them in law enforcement. And they didn't talk about it, lest it hurt their careers. But in 2015, a retired law enforcement officer wrote a book that revealed the story. His name is Rocky Elmore, and he's originally from Oklahoma City. But in 1994, at age 34, he joined the U.S. Border Patrol and was assigned to Brownfield Border Patrol Station in San Diego. He remained there for 12 years, at which point he transferred to a station in Kingsville, Texas. Later, he transferred again to Tucson, Arizona. And after 20 years as a Border Patrol agent, he retired. He did so in part because he had just become a father for the first time at the age of 54, and he decided he needed to devote time to his family and to avoid the dangers of law enforcement. This meant that he no longer had a law enforcement career to look out for, and that gave him greater liberty to talk about some of the strange paranormal stuff that he and his colleagues had experienced. As a result, he wrote a book which is called Out on Foot, Nightly Patrols and Ghostly Tales of a U.S. Border Patrol Agent, and the title Out on Foot is Border Patrol slang for when an agent leaves his vehicle. In the book, he explains the term this way. Out on foot. 
for officer safety purposes unique to the Border Patrol. This radio call is to let dispatch know an agent will be out of his vehicle, usually hiking around alone deep in a canyon or some other remote area. The dispatcher will then call and do periodic safety checks. If the agent doesn't answer up, a search party is quickly sent to find out why. So agents undertake significant risks when they go out into the field and they let their dispatcher know to check in on them periodically on their field radios. Why did Elmore decide to write his book? He explains it this way. At the end of my career, I set out to write a book in order to share with the general public some of my amazing experiences. One of my goals was not to impress my readers or bore them, for that matter, with an I Love Me book about endless heroics and law enforcement stories. My intention is not to convince the reader of anything, and I have no particular agenda. I mean simply to share my stories. True, throughout my career, I have done my share of those things, as it is quite difficult to serve as a field agent for 20 years on the U.S.-Mexico border and not get into a real spot or two. However, for legal reasons, I cannot share the majority of those stories. Instead, I wish to give some insight into the world of the Border Patrol agent and demonstrate how vastly different it is from other law enforcement agencies worldwide. Picture it like a very dark version of Alice in Wonderland, if you will, because for 10 to 12 hours each day, my fellow agents and I stepped into some kind of parallel universe entirely incompatible with the world in which we spent the other 12. Most of the time, the strangeness of that world is due to purely natural causes, the types of activity that Border Patrol agents are required to engage in. But some of the time, especially in the 1990s, Elmore and his colleagues in the San Diego area reported paranormal experiences as part of their work, and this was the main thing he wanted to write about. My main goal with this book is to break ground, so to speak, and open a new door. To my knowledge, few, if any, law enforcement books offer true accounts of on-duty paranormal activity. This is my story blended with a collection of non-fiction tales regarding ghosts, apparitions, or spirits, whatever you wish to call them, as well as a lesser telling of possible Bigfoot and Sasquatch sightings. All accounts in this book originated with active Border Patrol agents, including my own experiences. Therefore, no living agent's real name is used, and for good reason. No active duty agent would dare breach this subject publicly due to risk of damage to his or her career. Such a faux pas could result in reduced or non-existent promotion potential, as well as the inheritance of titles such as loon or nut. Once upon a time, that was important to me, but I'm happily retired now and no longer have to concern myself with promotion potential. I also don't mind being called a loon or a nut. Trust me, I've been called worse. So this will be a work of oral history. Much of it is autobiographical, in which Elmore tells his own experiences, but other parts are taken from what his colleagues shared with him about what they saw. And it seems that the Brownfield station where he was working had an unusual share of paranormal experiences in the 1990s. I know of many law enforcement officers and soldiers who encounter the occasional supernatural situation. But at the Brownfield Station, we experience far more paranormal activity than any average station. Of that, I am confident. I believe if everyone remains quiet and nobody ever shares their stories, then these tales become lost in time. Such stories are taboo and rarely, if ever, documented. Of that, I am equally confident. However, I have shared some of these tales as they occurred with family and friends, 
leaving them utterly amazed and often speechless. For years, those close to me have begged me to write this book, but I dared not while still an active-duty agent. But he finally did upon his retirement. Before we get to the stories themselves, we should set the stage a little. Tell us about San Diego, where all of this occurred. San Diego is located in the southernmost part of California, right at the Mexican border. Our sister city on the other side of the border is Tijuana. The area has been inhabited since prehistoric times, dating back to at least 10,000 B.C., because people then didn't have writing. We don't know what they called themselves, but archaeologists have found evidence of two cultures, which today are known as the Sandiguito people and the La Jolla people. Around 81,000 new people moved into the area who are known as the Kumeyaay, and they were here at the time of contact with Europeans. In 1542, the Spanish explorer Juan Cabrillo sailed up the coast of North America and visited the site that's now San Diego. In the 1700s, the Franciscan priest Father Junipero Serra brought a team of missionaries to the area and began setting up missions both in Baja California, which is in Mexico, and Alta California, which is part of the U.S. Baja and Alta California respectively mean Lower and Upper California. The first mission that he founded in Alta California was Mission San Diego, named after San Diego de Alcala. Who was St. Diego? He was also a Franciscan missionary. He lived in the 1400s. He's also known as St. Didicus of Acala, St. Diego of Acala, and St. James of Acala, depending on which version of his first name you want to use. There's also a fascinating fact about him, which is that there is apparently a 16th century robot of him in the Smithsonian Institution. A 16th century robot. They had robots in the 1500s? They did. Robots are not as new as people think they are. In fact, they had robots in the ancient world, in classical antiquity, and we'll definitely be talking about ancient robots in a future episode. What happened in this case is that in 1562, one of the sons of King Philip II of Spain gravely injured himself. After spending the night with some ladies, he was groping around in the dark and fell down a flight of stairs, hitting his head. He went blind, developed a fever, and his head swelled up to great size. But in a moment of clarity, he said he wanted to make a personal petition to St. Diego. So they brought the saint's body to him, laid one of the saint's hands on his chest, and he peacefully fell asleep. While asleep, he had a vision in which St. Diego told him that he wouldn't die, and he did indeed recover. Afterwards, in thanks, King Philip commissioned the construction of a clockwork robot of San Diego. According to sculptor Elizabeth King, In the Smithsonian Institution is a 16th century automaton of a monk, made of wood and iron, 15 inches in height. Driven by a key-wound spring, the monk walks in a square, striking his chest with his right arm, raising and lowering a small wooden cross and rosary in his left hand, turning and nodding his head, rolling his eyes, and mouthing silent obsequies. From time to time, he brings the cross to his lips and kisses it. We'll have a link to online material where King discusses the robot and which also includes a small video of it in motion. There apparently is a question of whether the robot is actually of San Diego, but that's what's reported by tradition. What's not in doubt is that Junipero Serra founded the Mission Basilica San Diego. Tell us about that. 
Well, it didn't have the honorary title of Basilica back then. That was granted to it by Pope Paul VI to recognize its historical significance. It was founded back in 1769, so it's older than the United States. And I used to live right across the street from it, so I went to Sunday Mass there every week. It's been rebuilt and renovated over the last 250 years, but it still retains a very rustic feel. For example, the floor of the church is composed of large handmade mud bricks that were left to bake in the sun. And I always loved it when I'd look down at Mass and see the small footprint of a little animal that had scampered across the bricks while they were still wet a couple of centuries ago. So, you know, how cool is that? A mission that's got animal footprints in its mud brick floor, but that also reportedly has a robotic version of its namesake in the Smithsonian Institution. (laughs) Got the past and the future colliding. (laughs) So uh, Father Sarah then went on to found other missions. Yeah, he founded or was present at the founding of nine other missions, including ones that in the state, including ones that are commemorated in the names of California cities like San Gabriel, San Luis Obispo, San Juan Capistrano, Santa Clara, Santa Barbara, and San Francisco. All told, there are 21 California missions, but Father Sarah was only involved in founding about half of them. So having set the stage, let's get back to Rocky Elmore's book, Out on Foot. What was it like for you when you read it? It was an interesting experience. For a start, he's constantly talking about places I know and hear about all the time, places like El Cajon, Chula Vista, and Otay Mesa. In fact, All of the sites he mentions are within about 20 or 30 miles of where I live, so I recognized lots of the locations he was talking about. I'm also familiar with the Border Patrol, which is a regular site here, particularly when you're out driving in the country, you know, which, since we're right along the border, the major highway going east is right along the border. So, of course, you encounter the Border Patrol. I periodically go through their checkpoints if I'm doing that. And the Border Patrol is the law enforcement arm of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Service, which since 9-11 has been part of the Department of Homeland Security. Their basic mission is to ensure the security of the U.S national borders, including both the Mexican and the Canadian borders. That's become a source of increasing concern since 9-11, since our borders are big and largely open. Their mission includes five basic goals. One, establish substantial probability of apprehending terrorists and their weapons as they attempt to enter illegally between the ports of entry. Two, deter illegal entries through improved enforcement. Three, Detect, apprehend, and deter smugglers of humans, drugs, and other contraband. 4. Leverage smart border technology to multiply the effect of enforcement personnel. And 5. Reduce crime in border communities and consequently improve quality of life and economic vitality of targeted areas. Many of those goals, like stopping terrorists and smugglers, are non-controversial. But their mission of deterring illegal entries means that they're also involved in the more controversial subject of illegal immigration or whatever you prefer to call it. As always, we're here to talk about mysteries rather than take positions on political hot potatoes, so we won't be debating that. 
Instead, we'll be debating the possible explanations for the paranormal phenomena that we'll be covering. However, since I know people will be curious about this, we will quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which actually has a very balanced statement on the subject of immigration in paragraph 2241. The more prosperous nations are obliged, to the extent they are able, to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. Political authorities, for the sake of the common good for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions, especially with regard to the immigrants' duties toward their country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens. I also want to say a few words about Agent Elmore's attitudes towards the people he was interacting with as part of his job. He definitely had different attitudes towards different kinds of people. For example, he was particularly negative towards the RIP crews. What's a RIP crew? He defines the term like this. RIP crew. Usually very experienced, hardcore, and heavily armed bandits or drug cartel members trying to take down and rob drug loads from opposing cartels. Often, these are cold-blooded killers and are undoubtedly an agent's greatest safety threat. Needless to say, he was not friendly at all towards the RIP crews. He also had a disapproving attitude towards the smugglers who would bring people across the border. These individuals are sometimes called guides or coyotes or coyotes. They often call themselves polleros or chicken farmers because they refer to the people they bring across as pollos or chickens, which tells you something about how they regard their clients. They see them as chickens who are in their care as chicken farmers. Agent Elmore disapproved of the way the smugglers took advantage of and at times abused the people they were bringing across. For example, he records the following incident. One night, after having a somewhat minor fight with one of the smugglers and getting the best of him, I noticed three or four of the younger women in the group covering their mouths while they watched and realized they were laughing. Then one of the men in the group asked if he could tell me something privately. I allowed him to, and he quietly told me, The girls are laughing because the guide was very mean to them during our passage. They were afraid he was going to abuse them, so they enjoyed seeing him suffer at your hands. So I faced the girls and gave them a smile and a nod of approval, and their giggling commenced. They deserved to laugh. To put this in context, it helps to understand what would happen to border crossers who got caught. It's not like they would be sentenced to prison time. When the Border Patrol would process them, they'd do a criminal background check, and if the person didn't have a record, they'd be sent back over the border within a few hours. Often, they would return, even on the same night. In fact, once, Agent Elmore caught the same group of people crossing the border twice within 90 minutes of when they'd been returned. So, at least at the time, unless you were a smuggler or otherwise had a criminal record, getting intercepted by the Border Patrol in San Diego was more of an inconvenience than something that would result in you being held in custody for an extended period. Whether that's the case today, I couldn't say. 
I understand the situation has changed a good bit over time and that it goes through phases. For example, in the 1990s, there was a flood of border crossers coming through. At the Brownfield office, they were intercepting between 500 and 800 crossers per shift. With two shifts a night, the swing shift and the midnight shift, they could intercept between 1,000 and 1,600 individuals at this one station. And between the three stations in the San Diego area, including Brownfield, they could intercept up to 5,000 crossers per day, almost all of whom were immediately returned over the border. And those were just the ones who were intercepted. The total number of people trying to cross the border was obviously bigger. In any event, interceptions were very routine, and Agent Elmore took a much more positive attitude towards the ordinary people that the smugglers were bringing across. I will say, many illegals do have a pretty good sense of humor. Agents and aliens do not always have this adversarial relationship filled with hate like so many people think. It is a serious job, and we take it as such, but at the end of the day, we're all still human beings capable of sharing a laugh. If an alien's life is in peril, it is the Border Patrol agent that will save him or her, even at the risk of the agent's own life, and these people know it. So their job is not just to prevent illegal entries, but also to protect people who are coming in, which is important because crossing can be very dangerous and many have died. Depending on where a party of crossers starts from, the journey over the mountains can take three days and people die of dehydration and exposure to the elements. In fact, we'll be hearing about a site called White Cross, which commemorated those who have died. The White Cross Ridgeline splits the U.S.-Mexico border just east of where the international fence ends on Otay Mountain. On top of that ridgeline, there used to be a white cross that stood about 10 to 12 feet high, as best as I remember. The cross actually stood a few feet on the American side of the border and was erected as a memorial for all the aliens who had died while trying to cross the mountain. I'd like to let you hear some of what Agent Elmore has to say about the different groups in his own voice so that you can make your own estimate of his attitude. So here's some audio from a recent Coast to Coast AM show where he was being interviewed by George Knapp. First, here's what he has to say about the smugglers who bring people across. They're pretty dangerous. They'll they'll try to hurt you or kill you if they get a chance. They're not very nice people. They've usually committed pretty horrible crimes against the people they're leading over. You know, I almost even hate to get into it, but I would say the majority of the women that cross through the mountains and cross through those remote areas with those smugglers um, get sexually abused. I remember when I first got out there being a little bit naive to it all, walking around on trails and come across a pair of women's undergarments on the trail. And after seeing the mountainside strung with these undergarments from, from these ladies, then, you know, you realize that what's happening. How often are uh, agents shot at, attacked, smashed with rocks, things of that sort by some of the real bad guys who come across? I got shot at twice, and both times there were sniper-style attacks. Back right before I got in, there was a lot of bandit activity. So you had a lot of these shootouts where these agents would encounter bandits on these very narrow trails face-to-face and have these, you know, horrific shootouts at near point-blank range where both of them are emptying their weapons, you know, right into each other. 
And over time, the agents actually done quite well in those shootouts, and it pretty much ended bandits coming over armed. So then it seemed like the attacks changed from these face-to-face shootouts to more of an ambush-style attack or, or a uh, sniper-style attack. And I think that's uh, what a lot of guys are facing now. And here's what he has to say about the people doing the crossing. The agents themselves really, they don't have the negative attitude toward people like everyone thinks they do or they try to portray that they do. A lot of these are people that don't have very much. Some of them don't have anything. Why would we feel, (laughs) uh, you know, why would we dislike people like that? (laughs) An analogy I kind of like to use is that if you're driving down the road and you're speeding, and a policeman sees you speeding, he's going to pull you over and give you a ticket, but he doesn't hate you for it. And that's kind of how it is with us. We know people's crossing. They need to eat. They need to work. Uh, A lot of them's decent people. And we arrest them because they broke the law. They didn't wait their turn. They broke the law. So that's our job. But we don't hate them for it. We don't feel any negativity toward them for that. A lot of them go on in later life and do it the right way and get their papers and come over and become part of our society. So you can make your own assessment. And having said all that, let's get to the mysteries. What type of phenomena did the agents of Brownfield report? There are a variety of them in the book, including possible Bigfoot sightings and ghost activity. And you can read the book to hear all about them. Today, we're going to be focusing on one particular series of ghostly encounters. Jimmy, did the area have a history of paranormal activity? Apparently so. Here's another clip from Coast to Coast. Do the Native Americans, the tribes who once had that area, uh, do they have stories about creatures or entities or spirits in that in that region? A couple of the agents I worked with were uh, into the local folklore of the Indian tribes there, and they knew quite a bit about them, uh, about the tribes. The one thing I was told was that uh, the Otai Mountain Range and the Takati Mountain Range are twin mountain ranges, and that the Kumeyaay consider both of them to be sacred, and it's forbidden for human beings to go up there because if they do, they will stir up all these ancient curses and evil spirits. And I can verify that the local mountains are considered sacred by the Kumeyaay tradition. When vetting the claims in the book, I found an anthropological paper online that talks about that. And when did the ghostly encounters that Elmore was involved in begin? They began when he was a nug, a term that means new ugly guy and refers to trainees. After his initial training as a Border Patrol agent in Georgia, he and other members of his class were shipped back to San Diego for further training and to learn the tasks that they would need to be performing here in the local area. This phase began at six months into their training and led up to the 10-month marker, at which point they would take a pass or fail test and either become full-fledged agents or wash out of the program. So the 10-month test was heavy on all of the new ugly guys' minds, and they would be taking it in just two or three days. As part of their training, they were sent out with an experienced group of agents into the field and began doing the actual work of intercepting border crossers. In late March of 1995, Agent Elmore was being assigned to work in the country around Otai Reservoir and Dam outside San Diego. The terrain is treacherous with 120-foot cliffs around the sides of the dam. 
Agent Elmore had been working in the area heavily for several nights, and on March 28th, he was assigned to work with a new partner named Luis Santiago. I was scheduled to be Border Patrol agent trainee Luis Santiago's partner for the midnight shift, March 28th, and was looking forward to it. Originally from Puerto Rico, Luis had a good sense of humor, and those around him were always laughing. He was a natural comedian and very likable, but was always extremely safety conscious. He wore his bulletproof vest everywhere he went, even on days we were just attending classroom activities. I'd never been paired up to work with Santiago before, and I was certain it would be an interesting night. Like I said, I was looking forward to it. Even better, it was only two or three days before our final test as trainees, the 10-month exam. If we passed it, we would be real agents. If we failed, we were fired. Either way, this would be one of our last nights in the fields as trainees. During our lunch break, most of the class was standing outside BSing and telling what few war stories they had when Santiago voiced his concern about working up on the mountain. He was worried about groups of aliens turning on the agents and not being able to get back up in time. I believe his exact words were, If you run into a group of 20 by yourself and they jump you, you're just dead and that's it. Santiago naturally had a funny way of saying things and everyone laughed at his comment. Nobody was overly worried about getting jumped, but we all knew how safety conscious he was, so it just seemed funny. Santiago had been a San Diego County Sheriff's deputy before joining the Border Patrol, so he did know what he was talking about. And I had no doubt that working with him that night was going to be a riot. But Elmore started feeling ill, and he realized that he was coming down with the flu. He was exhausted, and he had chills, and couldn't stop shaking. He and the other trainees had been advised by a senior officer that they shouldn't take sick time during this period. But when the time came to go in for his shift, he was feeling so bad that he realized it wasn't safe for him to be out in the field exhausted and trembling and trying to do a dangerous activity. And in, this is a dangerous activity. In fact, the Border Patrol has had more officers killed in the line of duty than any other federal law enforcement agency. So it's a dangerous job. And thus, against his wishes, he called in sick and Luis was assigned a different partner that night. Elmore thus stayed home, put his equipment back on the shelf and went to bed, falling asleep within minutes. A little while later, however, I was woken by a beeping sound. It had a rhythm to it, like a distress signal. I was unsure where it was coming from and stumbled around in the dark a few moments until I could locate the source. Eventually, I realized it was coming from my equipment in the closet. More specifically, it was coming from my service-issued radio, yet I was positive it had been turned off before it was put away. I checked in, indeed, it was off, but the beeping from the radio continued. I supposed the battery had a short. I turned the radio on and then back off again. It beeped a few more times and then finally stopped. As I climbed back in bed, I noticed the clock. It read 12.02, just after midnight. Almost instantly, I went back to sleep. The next morning, Rocky was feeling much better and he went out for breakfast. But when he got home, he found a message on his answering machine. It was my cousin, Daryl Kimball, a San Diego County deputy. He sounded very worried and said I needed to call him immediately to let him know that I was all right. Puzzled, I gave him a ring. Hey, I'm fine. What's up? Daryl told me the awful news. A Border Patrol trainee had been killed the night before at Otai Lakes Dam right at midnight, two days short of his 10-month test. My class, my shift. The news media had not released the name of the agent yet, and he was worried that it might have been me. I was stunned. 
one of my classmates was dead, and despite the Academy's best efforts to prevent it, I was friends with all of them. I wondered which one, but didn't really want to know. I knew the station would be chaotic, so I did not dare call. Instead, he called one of his friends, who was a fellow classmate. We didn't waste time with small talk. Who was it, I asked. Santiago. He answered. Neither of us felt like talking. I hung up the phone, stunned. So Elmore's scheduled partner the previous night, Luis Santiago, was dead. That night, at the pre-shift briefing known as the muster, Elmore learned what had happened. The training unit had arrived at Dam Canyon shortly before midnight, just like they had previous nights. Just as before, there were already groups in the bottom of the canyon waiting to be worked. Santiago was assigned to work with his training officer, Mikey, and two or three other trainees. One of our other classmates, Alan, was running the night vision scope from the top of the park that night. A group was detected trying to climb up the trail in between the Otai Lakes Dam and the cliffs adjacent to it. The illegals evidently heard the agents coming and retreated back to the bottom of the canyon. The training unit was near the top of the dam already, and their FTO, or field training officer, started leading them down the trail towards the bottom. For some reason, Santiago decided to stay up top, near the dam, and next to the cliffs. Whether he saw aliens already on top of the cliff, I do not know. The scope operator had spotted a group somewhere in the general area, though, and Santiago was talking to him about it over the radio. Suddenly, he ran towards the cliff, telling the scope operator, I'll be there in a minute. Those were the last words he ever spoke. Next, there was a loud scream. The trainees and their FTO Mikey saw Luis's flashlight tumble down the cliff and knew immediately what happened. Mikey frantically called the other FTO on the radio. An agent just fell off the dam. Ricardo, the other FTO, asked, Off the north side? Meaning into the water where it was survivable? No. Mikey answered back, The south side. Everyone knew what that meant. When the others reached the bottom of the cliff face, they found Luis Santiago's body. He had fallen 120 feet to the rocks below, and nothing could be done. He was already dead. A field operations supervisor arrived on scene and made the one call no agent ever wants to hear over the radio. The agent is 10-7. 10-7 is a code meaning out of service. The term is used to indicate a broken piece of equipment or, in the case of an agent, that he's dead. The investigators ultimately ruled the death an accident that Luis had simply fallen off the cliff while running, but Agent Elmore and most of his classmates didn't believe this. They thought there was more to it. But that was the official explanation, and the time of death was ruled to be 12.01 or 12.02 a.m. And that's the same time that Elmore's radio started making the unexpected beeping noises that he interpreted as a distress signal. Correct, which in hindsight could suggest that they were what's known in parapsychology as a crisis apparition. Crisis apparitions are situations where a person is dying or in danger of dying and somehow manifests to people in a distant location, often people they are connected with. In the case of this crisis, Santiago would have been manifesting to his scheduled partner, Elmore. Santiago died on a Tuesday, and his memorial service was held with law enforcement honors, including a bagpiper playing Amazing Grace, that Friday. And Friday night, something strange happened. The night of the memorial service, I went to bed around 10.30. It had been a hard day, and I was sleeping soundly until I woke to a rhythmic beeping coming again from my closet. 
I opened the door and found my work radio going off in the same weird rhythm as the other night. I looked at the clock and it read 12.02 a.m. The hair on my neck lifted. I had an overwhelming feeling that someone was waiting for me to press the talk button and say something, but I did not have the courage. I was afraid who might answer back. I double-checked the radio to make sure it was off, and it was. I turned it on and off a couple times as before, but it continued to beep. Finally, I took the battery out, and it stopped. I carried that radio on duty for years after that night. The only time it ever beeped like that was the night of Luis Santiago's death and the night of his memorial service. The next week, Rocky asked some of the senior agents what kind of distress signals their radios could make, and they told him they couldn't. The radios weren't built with any kind of emergency buttons or beeping rhythms as distress signals. That was at the end of March, and two months later, at the beginning of July, another strange thing happened. Elmore was at work and was processing border crossers who had been intercepted when his friend Bill came up to him. Bill approached me, looking a bit pale, and said, Hey, Rocky, the prisoners over there just told me they saw Santiago up on the mountain. I was puzzled by that. What do you mean they saw Santiago up on the mountain? He repeated himself. Tonight, they told me they saw Santiago up on the mountain. Do you mean they're trying to say he's not really dead? Are they making jokes about his death? I snapped. No, they saw his ghost on the trail leading up from the White Cross, and they're still over there talking about it. They're pretty shaken up. Apparently, Bill relayed, after an encounter with Santiago, the aliens stood frozen until agents tracked them down and took them into custody. Elmore looked for himself and saw that the detainees did indeed look frightened. A few days later, on the night of July 15, 1995, Elmore and three other agents were out in the field near the White Cross Trail. The White Cross, you'll recall, was the monument set up on the U.S. side of the border to honor all those who had died coming across. On this night, Elmore and the other agents had maneuvered themselves around a group of 30 crossers. The agents were in communication with each other by radio and were in position to take them into custody when the group suddenly stopped moving and just stood in the road. We waited several minutes before asking, are they moving yet? No, they're just standing there. Something's going on. Agent Miguel answered, There's some kind of commotion. I think somebody stopped them. After a brief pause, he came back on the radio again. We hear crying. You guys start back to the top. We're going to go over to them now and see what's up. Mark and I left our positions and started hiking back up the canyon wall. It took several minutes to get back to Miguel and his partner's position. When we reached the illegals, the entire group was indeed just standing there in the road. Nobody tried to run off or make any other escape attempts. Some were still crying. The whole scene was strange. I'd never seen a group just stand there and wait to be caught before. And when they interviewed the group, the people said that they had been stopped in the road by a phantom border patrol agent who said his name was Luis Santiago. They said the deceased agent told them about his own death and the sadness he felt. Santiago then walked right up to the foot guide, that is, the smuggler bringing them across, and informed him they could go no further. Wait right here, he said, and disappeared. So they did. They waited until the other agents came and took them into custody and processed them. The next night, July 16th, two other agents named Ricardo and Sam were working the same area. And they didn't know about what had happened the previous evening because the four agents who had been there kept it to themselves. 
But Ricardo and Sam encountered another group of 30 crossers stopped and standing on the trail. They walked up to them, and nobody tried to run or hide. They seemed frozen with fear. When we started talking to them, Ricardo relayed, the aliens claimed that a phantom agent named Santiago walked up to them, carrying his head in his hands. Santiago's apparition proceeded to tell them about his own death. He said he was sad and could not yet pass on, implying that something was left unfinished. The phantom agent told us to stop here and wait, the alien said. Ricardo and Sam were both completely taken by surprise and grew angry. Ricardo yelled at the group, telling them to keep quiet. He accused them of lying and being disrespectful of the dead. How could someone possibly talk without a head, he demanded. An alien replied, He's a ghost. He can do whatever he wants. And the fact they reported him carrying his head in his hands was particularly interesting because when he fell off the cliff, Agent Santiago had severely injured his head. In fact, that was the cause of death. But the gruesome details had been kept out of the paper, so the public didn't know about this. And word started getting around about the Phantom Border Patrol agent. The border crossers started referring to him as El Fantasma, the phantasm, the phantom, or the ghost, depending on how you want to translate it. Different groups of agents were also starting to have similar experiences, also in the White Cross area, where they would encounter crossers who were simply stopped and waiting to be picked up after reportedly meeting with Agent Santiago. All right, I'm getting goosebumps at this point. How did the crossers know that he was a ghost and not just a person pretending to be one? Apart from the incident where he was carrying his head, they reported two things. First, they said that he didn't walk the way a living agent would. Instead, he would float across the ground. And second, they said he was slightly transparent. So any of those things would be pretty convincing and would explain why they decided to simply comply with his instructions. In one case, when agents approached such a group, the smuggler who was bringing them across became hysterical and fell to his knees and started crying Santiago's name over and over again. The crossers reported that Santiago told them about his death, that he was sad, and that he couldn't cross over yet. That suggests he had unfinished business of some kind. Did the agents develop any ideas about what that unfinished business might be? Yeah, you'll recall that we mentioned that Elmore and his friends did not believe the official story that Santiago had just accidentally slipped and fallen to his death. They thought there was more to it, and later they seemed to get confirmation. A few years later, somebody let it slip that Luis Santiago had actually been pushed off the cliff at Otay Lakes Dam on that fateful night, and even knew who may have done it. This was no real surprise to anyone. It was exactly what most of us had believed all along. Here's something to think about. A guide or smuggler taking his group of illegals across to Otai Lakes Dam would likely start from the area that was currently being haunted. Guides only work the specific trails and routes they're allowed to work and have one or two canyons they share with a handful of other foot guides. If they start intruding on another smuggler's route without permission from their bosses, it often costs them their lives. We found bodies of dead foot guides who got crossways with other smugglers all the time. If Agent Santiago was indeed murdered at Otai Lakes Dam, like I believe he was, then the smuggler who did it was likely leading groups starting from the White Cross area, the same area where they were being stopped by a so-called ghost agent. And you'll recall that right before his death, Santiago had said, 
if you run into a group of 20 by yourself and they jump you, you're just dead and that's it. Maybe Elmore was right that Santiago had stayed on the ridge because he saw some people up there and then he was jumped and pushed to his death just like he feared. And now he was searching for his killer by appearing to groups crossing the same route that the smuggler would be required to take. Did the routes shift after word about Santiago's ghost started getting around? Yes. After the initial encounters, the smugglers did shift their routes and start taking people through ones that didn't involve the White Cross area. Some of the guides they took into custody said that they were avoiding the area because they didn't want to encounter El Fantasma. Sometime in late August, during the hot summer months, the sightings shifted to a new area. A couple of agents apprehended a group of aliens coming down from a peak called the 562 Hill. This peak went from sea level and rose to almost 1,800 feet, so it was no easy chore getting up it. Several unfortunate souls had died from heat stroke trying to cross that hill in the summertime. The 562 Hill stood between the Otai Mountain and Otai Valley Dam Canyon. Groups heading toward the lake dam would often take this route to get there. The group of aliens involved in this particular encounter told the arresting agents how they had gotten separated from their guide the night before. They were hopelessly lost and out of water and could have easily died as many others had before. The party then claimed that they were approached by Border Patrol agent Santiago. An agent stopped us last night, they said, but he didn't seem real. We could see through him. The phantom pointed to a trail and told us to follow it. You will find water on the other side, he told us. Then he disappeared into the night, they all said. The group did as instructed and just as the phantom claimed, found water. Unlike other witnesses who were terrified by the encounters, this bunch was thankful. When the agents tracked them down, the aliens were quite glad to see them. The phantom saved our lives, they said. And saving the lives of border crossers is also part of a border patrol agent's duties. On October 15, 1995, a different kind of event occurred. This time, an agent named Alan was sitting in his vehicle when he heard a scream. He got on the radio and asked the agent who was manning the night vision scope to take a look and determine if he could see anybody near the vehicle. The agent reported that he couldn't. But when Alan keyed his vehicle radio mic again, the radio went crazy. These radios have an LED readout that tells what channel it's on. It spells out the frequency, such as BRF8, BRF9, etc. However, the radio just began to scroll words and letters in an unintelligible manner for about a minute, just gibberish. When it stopped, it spelled out Santiago. The radio then promptly went dead and would not reboot. By coincidence, there was a frequency zone that bore the agent's name in San Diego sector, but it wasn't a frequency we used, and it took a couple of tricky manual adjustments to change the radio to that zone. The vehicle was turned over to the garage in order to repair the radio, but the mechanics were unable to fix it. It had to be completely replaced. So there was a radio frequency in the area that was named Santiago, the Santiago frequency. So this could have been a coincidence where the radio broke and switched to that frequency. However, interestingly, Agent Allen had been the last agent Santiago had talked to on the night he died. The area in which the ghost was manifesting also continued to shift. Between November 1995 and January 1996, aliens began reporting that a phantom Border Patrol agent 
was stopping them on top of the cliffs near Otai Lakes Dam. No longer were the reported sightings on Otai Mountain. Now they were confined only to the cliffs next to the dam at Otai Lakes. The ghost had moved. So now it was manifesting right near the spot where Santiago died. We now turn the corner into the year 1996. On January 21st, an agent named Gail Eschelmeyer and her partner were working the midnight shift in the Otai Lakes area. Around 5 a.m., they were alerted by radio that a pair of border crossers were on top of the dam. There are three or four different trails the pair could have followed from the dam. The agents chose one and hoped the aliens would come their way. A moment or two later, two illegals appeared, walking directly for the concealed agents. The pair was talking out loud, not at all caring if they were detected. Without hesitation, the two walked right up to Eschelmeyer and her partner and turned themselves in. One said, We knew you were waiting for us. Agent Eschelmeyer asked, How did you know we were waiting right here? An alien answered, The phantom agent on top of the cliff by the dam told us you were here, waiting for us, and that we should come over and give ourselves up. But there was one final encounter that we need to discuss. According to an article published in the major local newspaper, the San Diego Union Tribune, and later reprinted in the U.S. Congressional Record, Repeating a tragedy in the dark, a man trying to evade a U.S. Border Patrol agent plunged to his death and five other men were injured when they ran off a 120-foot cliff near Otai Lakes Dam Saturday night. The cliff is about 50 yards from the place where a Border Patrol agent fell to his death last year while chasing illegal border crossers. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are investigating Saturday's events because of reports that the agent may have fired his gun, panicking the group. The agent, whose name has not been released, has denied firing his weapon. He has been assigned to administrative duty pending the outcome of the investigation. Robert Walsh, the FBI special agent in charge of the San Diego office, said the agent's gun is being tested to determine whether it was fired. At a press conference yesterday, Border Patrol Chief Johnny Williams said the agent was near Otai Lakes Dam when he spotted a group of 15 suspected illegal crossers and hid in the brush until they passed. He began tailing the group and then ordered them to stop, said Border Patrol spokesman Ron Henley. Nine complied, six broke into a run, Williams said. Shortly thereafter, the agent heard cries and screams and found that the six men had fallen off a sheer cliff. Williams said the incident happened about 9.40 p.m., according to the Border Patrol. An agent also was injured in the rescue operation and was taken out of the area by helicopter. U.S. Attorney Alan Burson said smugglers should be blamed for Saturday's death. Officials said they believe the 15 men paid a minimum of $300 each to a guide who brought them to the isolated area only about four miles from the border. The people who led these people here, and one man to his death, have to be dealt with, Burson said. As a matter of public safety, we must stop the smuggling of human beings. These people are profiting off the misery of others' poverty. Saturday night's incident was reminiscent of rookie agent Luis Santiago's fall to his death last March when he slipped from a cliff while chasing a group of suspected illegal crossers near the lower Otai Reservoir. Santiago, 30, had raced up a canyon rim after them and plunged 100 feet down a hill with jagged rocks. So within 150 feet of where Agent Santiago died, a group of six other men also fell, with one of them dying. It was 
alleged that they ran after an agent fired his gun as a warning, but he denied doing this. And later FBI tests revealed that this agent's gun had not been fired and that he did not have powder residue on his hands. So that supports the claim that he didn't fire a warning shot and the crossers ran for some other reason. Agent Elmore comments, I can tell you for sure that when a group takes flight, the foot guide is the first to run. The rest of the group will play follow the leader and run right behind him. It is almost a certainty that the smuggler went over the cliff first and was the one killed. The following five landed on top of him, which broke their fall somewhat. So it was likely the smuggler who was the one that died. And there's an additional side to this story. Elmore reports, I learned the real story from the agents who were actually working that night. They said that when Agent Arlo arrived at the scene, there was already chaos. He told the investigators six people had already gone over the cliff and nine were still on top screaming for help. Arlo called for more agents to come to the scene and help him with the rescue effort. So according to the agents who were on the scene, the tragedy had already occurred and the agents then helped with the rescue effort. So it occurred before they got there, according to them. Elmore also reports that he was later given more information by a senior agent shortly before he retired. All nine uninjured aliens were interviewed and processed at the station. After that, they were sent to view a lineup with Arlo in it. None of the aliens identified him as the culprit. So the FBI proceeded to line up everybody that was working that night. Still, no one was chosen as the guilty party. However, the surviving aliens insisted they could identify the guilty agent if they could just see him. Pictures of agents who were not on duty that night were brought in and shown. Still, there were no takers. Finally, one of the patrol agents assisting with the investigation went out into Memorial Hallway where the pictures of all the fallen agents from the Brownfield Station are hanging on the wall. He took down Luis Santiago's picture and brought it to the FBI, who then presented it to the survivors. When the investigating FBI agents asked the witnesses if this was the Border Patrol agent who had chased them and fired his gun, every single one said, yes, he was shooting at us and chased us toward the cliff, they cried. So, according to the senior agent that was about to retire, the crossers identified Luis Santiago as the one who had scared the six men into running, leading to the death of one of them, most likely the smuggler that had brought them across. And this was the last time that the ghost was ever reported. After the apparent smuggler died, nobody reported seeing Santiago again. All right, we'll continue with the story of the ghost of the Border Patrol agent. But first, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Phil B., Christopher R., David C., Stephen B., and Daniel S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. 
So, Jimmy, what theories are there about these reported supernatural encounters? From the reason perspective, we need to consider what could account for the reports. Could it have a natural, conventional explanation, such as being a hoax, imagination, or the misidentification of a natural phenomenon? And from the faith perspective, how should we regard it? Could it really have been Santiago's ghost? And are the actions reported in this case consistent with what a ghost would do? Okay, let's start with that. What can we say about the ghost reports from the faith perspective? Could it really have been the ghost of Luis Santiago? In principle, yes. From the perspective of Christian faith, our spirits survive death, and there is no reason why they can't manifest to the living if God chooses to allow that. For more information on this topic, listen to episode one on ghosts and episode 115 on the famous early American ghost story known as the Wizard Clip. So from the faith perspective, there's no reason in principle why it couldn't have been the ghost of Luis Santiago. What about the actions the ghost allegedly performed, like saying he was sad and could not yet move on? That would be consistent with the idea that his ghost was not yet ready for heaven. In other words, he was still in the process of becoming detached from the things of this life, which is a key part of what purgatory involves, being freed from the disordered attachments we have to things in this world. And down through history, there have been many reports of souls in purgatory manifesting on Earth as part of working things out that they need to work out in order to go to heaven. What about the fact that he intercepted border crossers and told them to turn themselves in? I can imagine people taking different positions here because this is a highly politicized and polarized issue. Someone who favors letting people cross the border unimpeded might argue that a saved soul simply would not do that, and if anything, he would help the crossers. On the other hand, someone who doesn't favor letting people cross the border unimpeded might argue the exact opposite, saying that a saved soul would tell people crossing the border illegally to stop and turn themselves in so they can be returned to their own countries. In this case, I would caution against trying to identify our own political positions too closely with fundamental morality. The fact is that, as we heard in the quotation from the Catechism at the beginning of the episode, this is an issue that requires balance. There is a role for accepting migrants and refugees, and there is a role for controlling the flow of migrants and refugees. As a result, this is a matter of debatable policy, which particular configurations of policies will best promote the common good in a given situation. It is not the case where fundamental morality dictates absolutely open borders or absolutely closed ones. Consequently, we shouldn't be quick to declare what a safe soul would do or wouldn't do in this case. Particular policies may strike us as advisable or inadvisable based on the limited earthly perspective we currently have, but it's a limited earthly perspective and we don't have all the facts. What kind of facts might a departed soul have access to that we don't? Well, the ghost reportedly helped a group of border crossers that had been separated from their smuggler and then helped them find water. Uh, it could be that the groups he told to stop and wait for the border patrol could have faced other dangers because this is a dangerous activity 
and he was keeping them from those dangers. Or it could be that he was setting them up for better outcomes in, in life further in the future if they didn't cross, or at least didn't cross on that particular night. After all, that's the fundamental reason that God allows us to experience setbacks in this life in general. As the Catechism states, God would not allow an evil to occur unless he was going to bring a greater good out of it. So even if you view being stopped by the Border Patrol as an evil, God wouldn't allow that to happen unless a greater good was going to come from being stopped. And thus, maybe the ghost was simply furthering those aspects of God's greater design, which we don't have access to. What about the final encounter where the ghost reportedly charged, leading to the death of a person? This was very different than any of the preceding encounters. The ghost never displayed this behavior on any other occasions, and that suggests that there was something different about this encounter, which motivated the change in behavior. Since the man who died was most likely the smuggler, and since later reports from border crossers indicated that Santiago had been pushed off the cliff either by a smuggler or a group under the direction of a smuggler, the smuggler, in this case, is the most likely cause for the change in behavior. In other words, Santiago finally came across the smuggler who was responsible for his death and took action to deal with him. In fact, this may have been the unfinished business that he needed to take care of before moving on. He had been appearing to look for that smuggler all this time and finally found him. This hypothesis would be supported by the fact that the ghost never appeared again after this encounter. Would a soul really kill a person like this? Well, there are a couple things to say here. First, it depends on what type of soul we're talking about. As we heard in episode 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, Aquinas thought that God can let different types of souls appear to the living as part of his plan. He can allow the saints in heaven to manifest, he can allow the souls in purgatory to manifest, and he can allow the souls of the damned to manifest. So, just as a hypothetical possibility, what if Santiago was damned? And this was a case of God allowing a damned soul to appear. I could see where God might allow a damned soul to manifest in order to bring justice to the person who led to his death. It doesn't seem inconsistent to me with what's possible. Now, fortunately, I don't I'd raise that just for hypothetical purposes. I think the evidence much better supports the idea that Santiago was in purgatory. Yeah, Santiago also did good things for people, like where he helped the one group find water. So that would show he was in purgatory, right? Well, I don't think it proves it, because a damned soul doesn't have to be evil in everything it does. It might do something objectively good, even though its motives wouldn't be from the kind of supernatural love that the damned lack. I mean, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is in hell, but he still wants his brothers not to end up where he is. So he's doing something good. It's just not for the supernatural love of God. So in other words, I I think that the fact that the ghost helped them find water points in the direction of purgatory rather than hell, but I don't think it absolutely proves it. Would a soul in purgatory kill someone? That leads us to the second thing we need to say. 
he didn't actually kill the smuggler. He apparently ran towards the smuggler to confront him, and then the smuggler ran and fell off the cliff. So maybe it was an accident. Maybe the ghost wasn't trying to kill him, but to deal with him in some other way, and the smuggler ran and fell through his own fault. So that's a possibility that needs to be considered. But could a soul in purgatory ever intend to kill someone? If the person is a murderer that they are trying to kill, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. For example, consider what St. John says in Revelation 6. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Now, these souls are actually in heaven, but they're still calling to God for justice regarding those who killed them. This shows that those who are unjustly killed can appeal to God for justice against their murderers. So if that can happen with souls that are in heaven, it could certainly happen with souls who are in purgatory who still have attachments to this life. As a result, in the case of a murderer who will never be caught by human authorities and brought to justice, I could see God allowing a purgatorial soul to manifest in a way that allows him to bring justice for his own murder. I thus don't think it's impossible that God could allow a purgatorial soul to find and deal with his murderer. And as we said, we don't have proof that he was even trying to kill the smuggler in this case. The smuggler could have run and slipped by accident. Didn't some of the border crossers report that Santiago was firing his gun? Yes, and it's hard to determine precisely how to regard this. On the one hand, the report may not have been accurate. People's memories of what happens in a frightening, rapidly changing situation can be inaccurate. And people can sometimes lie in their own favor or to make someone else look bad. So if the people thought they were being chased by a normal non-spectral border agent, which seemed to be the case here because none of them said, oh, it was the Phantom, they could lie and say he was firing his gun to make this Border Patrol agent that scared the people off the cliff look bad. Or they may have simply been mistaken about this. Maybe the ghost just had his gun out of his holster and people misremembered it as being fired. In any event, later testing and testimony from others within earshot confirmed that no guns had actually been fired. On the other hand, firing a spectral non-physical gun might not produce such evidence and might not be heard by people who weren't witnessing the spectral event. But even here, this wouldn't show that Santiago was trying to kill anybody. Officers can fire their weapons as warning shots to get people to take their command seriously and stop what they're doing. In this case, Santiago might have fired a warning shot up into the air to get the people who were running towards the cliff to stop so they wouldn't fall over it. I thus don't think that we have a clear and obvious interpretation of what was going on here. In any event, I don't see any fundamental barrier to the idea that this was Santiago's ghost from a faith perspective. All right, then what can we say about the encounter from the reason perspective? Could they have a natural explanation? Whenever we look at a paranormal thing like this, we need to consider at least three basic naturalistic alternatives. First, that it could be people's imagination. 
Second, that it could be the innocent misinterpretation of something natural and conventional. And third, that it could be the product of deception, that is, someone putting on a hoax. In this case, I don't think imagination is a good explanation. We have reports of multiple groups of people having up-close encounters with the ghost, after which they stop dead in their tracks and wait to be taken into custody. I can imagine how a legend might get started that Santiago's ghost was appearing when it wasn't, but I can't imagine multiple groups of people letting their imaginations run away with them to the point that they simply stop and wait to be taken into custody. That strikes me as very implausible. What about the possibility that they innocently misinterpreted a natural phenomenon? It's very hard for me to see what phenomenon that would be. In the case of UFOs, it's easy to see how someone sees a distant object in the sky at or past the limit of what our vision can clearly discern and then mistake it for a UFO when it's actually something familiar, like a star or an airplane. But here we have multiple up-close encounters with the ghost being reported. In one of them, he's carrying his head. And in multiple ones, he announces that his name is Luis Santiago and talks about his death. It's hard to envision any natural phenomenon that would produce those effects without some kind of deception being involved. In the blazing heat of a summer day, the crossers might encounter a mirage, but almost all of the border crossings occur at night, and mirages are seen in the distance, not up close. And they don't look like people. And they don't say that their name is Luis Santiago or talk about their deaths. Mirages just don't do that. Then what about the idea that there was deception involved, that this was some kind of a hoax? That strikes me as our best bet if we want to find a naturalistic explanation for this. The question is, who would be doing the hoaxing? And I can think of several possibilities based on the different parties we have involved. The border crossers, the smugglers, the border patrol agents, or Elmore himself. All right, let's call up the Scooby van. That <laughs> seems the perfect job for them. But let's let's talk about what about the possibility this was a hoax that originated with the border crossers? Could they have decided to prank the border patrol with a made-up ghost story? That strikes me as implausible for two major reasons. First, the crossers are not an organized group. They're a random collection of people, many of whom have just happened to pay a given smuggler to take them across. There's no overall organization uniting the crossers, and that makes it implausible that there would be the organizational wherewithal to conduct and execute a hoax on the Border Patrol of this scale, with multiple different encounters being reported. Second, what would the motive be? I could see a single group of crossers deciding on a hoax just to have fun with the Border Patrol, especially if they already knew they were caught. You know, maybe they'd come up with a hoax real quick to make the agents look foolish. But such a hoax wouldn't involve multiple groups of people simply standing around and waiting to be taken into custody. That would be positively contrary to their interests. They might have a motive to come up with some other kind of hoax, but not one that results in the hassle of getting caught and processed. Even if you know you're going back to your country of origin after processing, it's still a big hassle for no clear payoff, you know, to get taken into custody and processed and sent back, and now you've got to cross all over again. So 
I don't think the hoax originating with the border crossers is a likely scenario. But what about a hoax perpetrated by the smugglers? Elmore actually considers this one in the book. He writes, We considered the possibility that the guides were making these stories up and telling them to their human cargo, but some of the witnesses involved had no guides. Also, how would a smuggler profit from telling such a thing? Fear of encountering ghosts would have ruined a profitable journey and created fear to the point that people would no longer want to cross in the mountains. That meant losing business. Besides, every group that was caught landed at the immigration jail facility for processing with the smuggler facing possible jail time. So why would a smuggler bring a group of 30 aliens illegally into the U.S., hike them up the mountain, and then frighten them into stopping and just standing there until the Border Patrol agents showed up to arrest them? He wouldn't. That's ridiculous. Moreover, his controller would have, would have had him killed. Large groups meant big money. Besides, it was usually the guides who were approached by the so-called phantom, and the guides were always caught when the phantom appeared. So, it doesn't sound like the hoax would plausibly begin with the smugglers themselves. Then what about the Border Patrol agents? In this case, we need to consider two main possibilities. First, that someone on the Border Patrol was impersonating Santiago and pretending to be his ghost in front of the border crossers. And second that people on the Border Patrol were hoaxing Agent Elmore by telling him that the ghost was appearing to the crossers. Or both. It could be someone on the Border Patrol was hoaxing both the crossers and Elmore. However, this last possibility falls apart if either one of the first two falls apart, so we don't need to consider it separately. All right, what about the idea that someone on the Border Patrol was pretending to be Santiago's ghost and hoaxing the border crossers. Elmore considers this possibility in the book, and he writes, At first, I thought maybe it was some agent with a sick sense of humor using the recent death to scare off a few pollos. However, many times over and over, this proved to absolutely not be the case. For a start, the reports that began coming in from the border crossers about Santiago once carrying his head, about him being transparent and moving by floating above the ground do not fit what a human Border Patrol agent would be capable of hoaxing. However, setting that aside, there is the question of how a living human agent would be able to approach a group of crossers in the first place. Elmore writes, It is interesting to note that the groups always knew it was a spirit as he approached, yet none of them ever tried to run from the phantom agent until the last sighting. No living agent would be able to simply walk up to a group of illegals out in the open because if the aliens recognized that it was a border patrol agent, they would take off running every time. Sometimes a patrol agent could walk up to a single person if he or she was lost or needed help, but a group would always quail. Always. Then there would be the question of how a living agent would be able to convince them to just stand there and give themselves up while he leaves and gets away so that no other agents can see him. And there apparently was an investigation of whether other agents could be involved. This reportedly happened after Agent Gail Eschelmeyer and her partner encountered the two people coming over the dam to give themselves up. Efforts were made to determine if there was indeed another Border Patrol unit by the dam because things were now moving from the bizarre to the downright dangerous. If an agent was up there messing around on top of the cliff, there would be consequences. However, it was determined that no other patrol agents were anywhere near the area. 
If another agent had been by the dam, he would have taken the aliens into custody himself. He would never send them a couple hundred yards away and just tell them to turn themselves into somebody else. So the idea that someone in the Border Patrol was impersonating Santiago's ghost and hoaxing the border crossers seems implausible. And then what about the idea that agents might be hoaxing Elmore by telling him all these things? This was another thing he considered. Here's a clip from him discussing it on a podcast from WNYC. First off, we thought, well, this must be a real agent just playing a joke. It's a very sick joke, and we don't like it. We don't appreciate it, but it's got to be that. And it was the groups themselves that have, that finally convinced us that this most definitely was nobody playing a trick. All of them said... We can see through him. He's transparent. He floats across the train as he walks. So these encounters started stacking up, and eventually the story just got out. It was just happening too much. And it, this was one of those rare occasions where ghost stories and the paranormal was talked about out in the open at the station, even by management, and nobody was laughing. Everyone was just shaking their head it's like, I have no idea what's going on, but this is legit. The fact that this would have been an unwelcome thing, that the agents would regard as a sick joke dishonoring their fallen colleague's memory, is a notable reason that it would be unlikely it would emerge as a hoax among the agents. It's especially unlikely that it would emerge as an ongoing one. I can imagine a person with a twisted sense of humor hoaxing Elmore briefly, however distasteful that might be, but an ongoing hoax lasting almost a year and involving all the different agents Elmore talked to about this seems quite unlikely. This is in part because nobody ever used it to embarrass him. There was no, ha, we really gotcha, ha, ha, ha moment where they let the cat out of the bag. In fact, even if the hoaxers decided to forego such a moment, you'd think that somebody who was in on the hoax would at some point tell Elmore what was going on just to let him know that people were playing him. After all, he had multiple friends, and these relationships are built on trust. The agents depend on each other for mutual protection in the field because they're doing a dangerous job. It's really hard to imagine a permanent hoax where numerous people were playing a prank on him and nobody ever said, gotcha, or, hey, you should know what's going on here. That's not how colleagues who depend on each other to save each other's lives act. Then what about the final theory that Elmore was lying to the audience in his book, that the book itself is the hoax and none of this actually happened? It seems to me that if there is a natural explanation for what happened, this would be the most likely theory. And the key motivator for it would simply be finding the story of Agent Santiago's ghost too fantastic. Now, I should note that you don't have to credit every detail of the story. I mean, since this is oral history, it's quite possible that some details are erroneous or exaggerated. However, if you find that you can't believe the core of the story, that his ghost was appearing at all, then Agent Elmore perpetrating a hoax with his book is the most promising theory. To support this theory, one might appeal to the fact that in the book, he doesn't give the names of any living agents with whom one could check to see if the reports of the ghost were actually in circulation back in the 1990s. 
His reason, as he explains at the beginning of the book, is that he wants to honor the privacy of the living agents since outing them could hurt their careers. However, that still means we can't consult with them for verification. Are there arguments in favor of him telling the truth? There are. For a start, there are elements of his story that can be verified. They're not the paranormal elements, but the normal ones do check out. Luis Santiago was a real person. He did work for the Border Patrol in 1995, and he did die the way Elmore says. All of this is part of the public record. It appeared in the San Diego Union-Tribune newspaper and in the U.S. congressional record that we heard from earlier. In fact, we'll have a link to the Border Patrol's memorial page commemorating Luis Santiago as a fallen agent. Also, you know, as part of reading any book for this show, I consider the question of, you know, could this all be a hoax? And I do my best to vet different elements that can be checked. And Elmore's cousin, Daryl Kimball, is a police officer, a helicopter pilot in San Diego. He has publicly confirmed on his webpage that he did call Elmore right after Santiago died to make sure it wasn't Elmore and that he was okay. So that detail of Elmore's book checks out. And one of the encounters was reported to be with an agent named Gail Eschelmeyer. He names her because she died in 2009 and thus doesn't need privacy protection. While we can't check with her to verify the paranormal part of the story, Gail Eschelmeyer was, again, a real person who really did work for the Border Patrol in San Diego. I've confirmed that through websites also. So if Elmore is hoaxing, he's building his story around a core of events and people that were real. Why would that give us reason to believe that he's not hoaxing? For the same reason that it's unlikely his colleagues would build a hoax around the death of Agent Santiago. He was a real agent who really did die in the line of duty, and it would be perceived by his colleagues as sick and disgusting for Elmore to dishonor the memory of a fallen hero by making up all this stuff about him. In fact, Elmore wouldn't just be dishonoring Santiago, he'd be dishonoring the entire Brownfield Border Patrol station by lying about the community and making up paranormal stories about it that never happened. That would taint everyone who worked there. And worse, he'd also be specifically dishonoring Agent Gail Eschelmeyer's memory by involving her in a hoax after her death. It would be even worse for Elmore to put this in a book for the whole public to read and to go on radio shows and podcasts talking about it, which he has done repeatedly over the years. If that was what was going on, you'd expect him to be denounced by his former colleagues as a lying fraud who is dishonoring them and their fallen comrades. And have they denounced him? Not that I can find. I did repeated web searches looking for anything like that, and I couldn't find anything. I also made a point of listening to the call-in segments of Elmore's Coast to Coast AM appearances, and they took calls from multiple Border Patrol agents. None of them denounced him. And three of them, uh, three of the agents who called in, had worked in the San Diego area, one before his time and one who was here at the time and who remembered him. But none of them even remotely suggested he was making this up. Are there other signs that he's credible, like things in the book itself? 
There are. For example, he's quite modest in what he claims. If he were a normal hoaxer, you'd expect him to make himself the center of all the stories, but he doesn't. He only reports a few paranormal incidents that he was involved in, and he does not report seeing Santiago's ghost at all, which is the most compelling story in the book. He, he says other people saw it, but he didn't see it. The amount of paranormal material in the book is also smaller than you might think. At the beginning of the work, Elmore admits that he doesn't have enough paranormal stories to fill an entire book. So to get the manuscript up to book length, and it's a short book, he tells a lot of stories about his training and what it's like working as a Border Patrol agent. That material is interesting to read, but it suggests that he's not simply making up paranormal stories. A normal hoaxer would have no problem making up enough stories to fill a book, which would increase its sales. One characteristic of hoaxers is that their stories often change over time, frequently becoming more dramatic. How does Elmore fare on that front? He has not made up new stories over time. I've read and listened to multiple versions of Elmore recounting these events, and they are remarkably consistent. He's not embellishing them to make them more dramatic as the years pass. Also, he's not coming up with dramatic new stories that aren't in the book, which is something you also find among hoaxers. What's more, he acknowledges that all of the paranormal stuff happened early in his career. It's all in the mid-90s, right after he started working at Brownfield. He even says that the sense of the paranormal faded from the area after Otai Mountain completely burned in a forest fire, which seemed to cleanse the area of some of the weird stuff happening there. But he kept on working there for more than a decade afterwards, and his career in the Border Patrol went on even longer in Texas and Arizona. But he doesn't make up new paranormal stories to fill up those years. It's particularly interesting to note that the neither in the book nor in subsequent interviews does he relate any UFO stories? And that's significant because Border Patrol agents spend a lot of time at night out in the countryside where you'd expect them to encounter lights in the sky that they might interpret as UFOs. In fact, Elmore acknowledges that he'd expect to have heard some UFO stories from his buddies, but he never did, so he didn't put any in the book. Are there any other signs of credibility in what he says? Yeah, he gives what sounds like a realistic account of his career, even when it's not flattering. For example, this is a minor thing, but he talks about how if you work the night shift, the midnight shift, you're going to fall asleep on duty sometimes. He acknowledges that he and other agents did that, although it's embarrassing. More significantly, he doesn't fill in certain details, even when radio show hosts ask him. He's very upfront, both in the book and in interviews, saying, I don't know about this because nobody ever told me that, or I'm not sure what the truth is at this point. He also repeatedly resists being dogmatic about whether any of the paranormal things happened or what they meant, and he simply invites the reader to make up their own mind. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on this story of the Border Patrol ghost? I think the story of Agent Luis Santiago is very compelling. It does not seem to me that anything from the faith perspective prevents the stories of his ghost from being accurate. 
Agent Elmore comes across as a credible author, and other naturalistic explanations for what happened are implausible, but you'll have to make up your own mind about it. To close, I would invite listeners to pray for Agent Santiago and for everyone involved in the story. Even though Agent Santiago may have gone to his reward in heaven by this point, as Pope Benedict XVI pointed out in his encyclical Spes Salvi, it is never too late to pray for someone because God is beyond the calculations of earthly time and he can apply his grace to people whenever they need it. I'd also invite listeners to pray for Border Patrol agents, for border crossers, and for the smugglers and criminals who operate on the border, because all of us need prayer. Very good. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have a link to Rocky Elmore's book, Out on Foot, Nightly Patrols and Ghostly Tales of a U.S. Border Patrol Agent. We'll also have a link to a video by Rocky Elmore, information on San Diego, St. Junipero Serra, Mission San Diego, San Diego de Alcala, the robot of San Diego, the California missions, the Border Patrol, the Border Patrol's mission goals that we quoted from earlier, the Border Patrol's In Memoriam page on Luis Santiago, Coast to Coast interview with Rocky Elmore, the 1996 congressional testimony we quoted from, and another podcast where Elmore recounts his story in his own voice on WNYC. All right. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, a couple of stories both connected with animals. The first one with a very big animal, the whale. There are reports as early as the book of Jonah of human beings being swallowed by a big fish, which has often been translated, even though the Hebrew doesn't say whale, has been understood as being a whale. And there's been a question of, well, can that really happen? There are various reports down through history of it happening, but I'm not aware of one that's been positively verified. There's a famous case from the 19th century, but it doesn't appear to be solidly sourced. However, the Cape Cod Times reports that just this year, 2021, a man was briefly swallowed by a whale, a fisherman. And so you can read about that. His <laughs> name, a humpback whale, apparently was, I guess, browsing, grazing, whatever, and temporarily swallowed a, a lobster diver named Michael Packard. This is local to me. And I saw this on all the local news as it happened. And boy, this guy has a whale of a tale to tell. It is fascinating. And uh, yeah, they had the, the local aquarium experts talking about it and all that sort of thing. It is a wild story. Just check it out. Our second link is to a story that you originally sent me, Dom, and it's about an animal that is very, very small, the ant. Now, you may recall back in episode 59, we did an episode on mind control parasites. These are parasites of one form or another that get in the body of a creature and then modify that creature's behavior and potentially other things. They do it so that they can complete their life cycle. So like, for example, there's one kind of parasite that needs to get into crickets and then they make the crickets jump in water so that they can get back into the marine life form that they spawn in. And then they get back into the crickets and they keep bouncing back before between these different life forms. Well, there's an article about a parasite that's been discovered in Germany that can affect ants and it results in immortal pampered zombie ants. 
basically. I love this one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So a typical ant can live for a worker ant can live for one to three years. Queens can live for 20 to 30 years, so many times longer than workers. Well, what this tapeworm does, it's a very small tapeworm, but it's a tapeworm, and it gets into the abdomen of certain worker ants, and it effectively makes them immortal so that they can live as long as queens, and they stay youthful that whole time. Also, just like ants pamper, worker ants pamper and take care of queens, the workers start pampering and taking care of the infected ants. So they will groom them. They will bring food to them. They will carry them around, even though they're not queens and are not contributing anything to the colony. So you can become an immortal pampered ant if you get infected. And it sounds like a great deal. But remember, the tapeworm needs to get back into something else for completing its life cycle. And the thing the tapeworm wants to get back into is a bird. And so in addition to being immortal and pampered, you're going to kind of become a zombie and lose some of your smarts. So what happens is when a bird breaks open the nest, all of the uninfected workers grab larvae and start running for safety. Whereas the immortal pampered zombies are just kind of staring up at the sky going, hey, what happened? <laughs> Waiting to be eaten by the bird. So you can read about the immortal pampered zombie ants at the link we'll have to an article in The Atlantic. And the immortal and pampered part sounds great, but the zombie part <laughs> is not so much fun here. Not certainly not the way it ends. Which, which, what, what price would you pay for immortality? It sounds like a, a, a morality tale. And uh, it's a great yeah. story. You could have a great Twilight Zone episode about this. Oh, yeah. Make it people. Man, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Those are, those are some great headlines. I'm glad we, we talked about them. So that does it for us this time. We would love to hear your theories about Rocky Elmore's account of the Border Patrol Ghost of Agent Santiago. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what is our next episode going to be about? Next week is a fifth Friday, so we'll be talking about weird questions like, do you need to get baptized again after going through a Star Trek transporter? Would a transported priest need to be ordained again? What happens to the guardian angels of frozen embryos? Do people eat and drink in hell? How did the Holy House of Loretto get to Italy and human-animal hybrids? Folks, follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>